Support for this podcast comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio and your money every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab. The show unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and investments. Listen today at schwab.com slash Washington Wise. That's schwab.com slash Washington Wise. Hey folks, Preet here. It is a precarious time in our country. The civil unrest combined with the economic uncertainty and the challenges created by the pandemic have further endangered our national security. In the meantime, the United States continues to confront efforts to undermine our democracy, our economy, and our way of life. Increasingly, our adversaries are using cyber capabilities to weaken America and our allies. Today, I'm excited to bring you a special episode of a new podcast we are starting from members of Cafe Insider. It's called Cyberspace, and it's hosted by my friend, recent guest of Stay Tuned, and renowned cyber and national security expert, John Carlin. John led the Justice Department's National Security Division under President Obama, and prior to that, served as Chief of Staff and Senior Counsel to then-FBI Director Robert Mueller. He is currently a partner at Morrison & Forrester, where he chairs the firm's Global Risk and Crisis Management Group. He also leads the Aspen Institute Cybersecurity Group. John and I have teamed up to keep the country safe in our previous jobs, and now I'm happy we're working together to keep the country informed. On Wednesday, he spoke with his successor at the Department of Justice, Assistant Attorney General John Demers. It's a fascinating conversation that spans a wide variety of issues, including the threat of civil unrest, domestic terrorism, foreign surveillance authorities, encryption, and Chinese espionage. For our takeaways from the interview, and to be notified about the new forthcoming Cyberspace podcast, head to cafe.com slash Preet and sign up to receive a free link. That's cafe.com slash Preet. And now, without further delay, the first episode of Cyberspace with John Carlin, featuring an exclusive interview with John Demers. From Cafe, this is Cyberspace, and I'm your host, John Carlin. My guest today is John Demers. John succeeded me as the head of the DOJ's National Security Division in February 2018. The National Security Division is the first new litigating division at the Justice Department in around 50 years since the creation of the Civil Rights Division and was established in the aftermath of the September 11th attacks. It tackles a wide range of threats to our country, from cybercrime and terrorism to espionage. It is also responsible for surveillance warrants against foreign spies and represents the government before the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. Demers is a veteran of the division, having first served when it first started under President George W. Bush. I'm excited that he joins us today on this first episode of the Cyberspace Podcast for a conversation about the many threats we face as a nation. John, it's great great to have you here today, and uh, you're someone I've known known a long time. We have a bit of bit of a strange story that way, uh, dating back to law school. Tell me a little bit about uh, from your perspective, <laughs> being uh, being in a job now the head of the national security division that didn't exist when we were when we were in law school together. 
I thought this isn't who's going to start with a little bit. Hey, why don't you tell me what you think of me? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, you're right. So, you know, as you know, John, I mean, this field didn't exist as a field before 9-11. And the division didn't exist in the department uh, before 2005. And it was uh, one of the recommendations of the Weapons of Mass Destruction Commission to reorganize the department, similarly to the way the FBI had reorganized. By the way, it always seems strange to me that why our our division was a recommendation of the Weapons of Mass Destruction Commission. Well, I think it's about who was in charge of that commission and (laughs) the ideas they had for the way the department should be uh, reconfigured. So, uh, you know, it, it was an effort on the part of the folks who were in charge at the time to um, bring together all the parts of the department that worked on national security, including the counterterrorism prosecutors, the counterespionage prosecutors, and then those attorneys who had worked on the applications to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court to add on to that a law and policy office to make sure you had a dedicated unit of people who thought about national security policy issues full time and that organize that under one assistant attorney general uh, and have that person report to the deputy attorney general. So it was more of a reorganization than a new division, but it is the first new division in the department since the Civil Rights Division uh, was created about 50 years uh, before that. Now, as you say, when we, when we were at uh, Harvard Law School together, there was no national security courses. I know right. I took one or two that at least touched on national security uh, issues, but they had a different feel back then. Was there anything um, in, in your law school experience where, where you thought maybe one day I'll end up doing national security? Not really national security. I always thought, oh, I'll come work at the Justice Department or I will work in government. I went to law school because I was interested in government and in policy work. So the idea of coming down here was very much uh, in line with what I was thinking. And in fact, when I first came to the department in 2003, two years after 9-11, it was not to work in the National Security Division, which had yet to be stood up, but it was to work in the Office of Legal Counsel. And then uh, when I I left the department uh, to go clerk for Justice Scalia, and at the end of that clerkship, when I was otherwise thinking, well, I suppose it's time to go back to private practice at this point and figure out what I'm going to do next, the department called and said, hey, you know, we're setting up this new division. Would you like uh, to talk to us about coming and working here with Ken Weinstein, who was the first uh, assistant attorney general. He hadn't been confirmed yet, but he had been uh, I remember, selected uh, for it. Getting a call because Ken Weinstein was the top prosecutor in the District of Columbia, right. the U.S. attorney, and I was a prosecutor there uh, at the time, so I knew him as a career prosecutor. And he said, "Looks like this guy went to law school around around when you did. Have you ever heard of?" Of John Demers, what do, you, what do you think of him? So I lied and said good things uh, <laughs> at the time, but yeah. it was interesting. He didn't know you, and you didn't know him when when you no. uh, started, and you didn't really know the division didn't exist. What it would be? What was your thought process when you when you started this uh, this division? Started at this division right at its birth. Well, so that was two thousand and six, and it was the last two years of the Bush administration, and. It was going to require me to come in as a political appointee in the last two years. At that time, it was post-Katrina. Things were not— Could you just explain for a little bit the difference between career and political appointees? 
Sure. So the uh, when I f- was first at the department, I was here as a career appointee, and that basically means you stay on uh, at the department indefinitely without regard to what administration is uh, currently in power at the moment. When you're a political appointee, uh, and the political appointees hold the more most of of the more senior jobs at the department, and but. So, so the upside is you get to run things a little bit more. Uh, the downside is if, you know, the administration that uh, appointed you and nominated you loses, then you get to find a new job. So in the last two years of the Bush administration, things were not looking very good for the Republicans already by then. The Congress had changed hands. Uh, and, you know, as I said, I had been thinking about going to private practice, but having gone to law school with the thought that I wanted to do government service and work at the Justice Department, having worked at the Justice Department for a couple of years before then, and having the opportunity to work at the first new division, working on national security, which then as now was such a priority of the department and of the country, I really couldn't pass up the chance uh, to come back. And, uh, and, and so I did. And I'm very glad that I did. Uh, the, the division was not yet started yet. I started in the criminal division while they were waiting to officially start the division with Ken's confirmation. And when that took place in September of 2006. Just a quick question. Wait, wait, so you're starting it up. up. It's still in the criminal division. Where did they stick you? I was in the front office as a very short-term counsel to the assistant (laughs) attorney general. But physically, how'd you find the office? Physically, (laughs) I was right outside where the new uh, secure facility for the National Security Division was going to be. So I was right in the, um, just two doors away from where the the front door of that skiff was. And so they they had already built it out. and They just didn't want to start the division going without a confirmed assistant attorney general in charge. And so uh, once that happened, we got up and running and I moved into the division. And uh, and then I spent the next, you know, two and a half years or so uh, in the division. The other thing, you know, knowing that it was national security, I had no worries about going in at the end of an administration because I knew it was going to be a busy time regardless. It wasn't a time when people were going to kind of wait and see what happened for the election. They were, we were going to have to continue to work on these issues. And as you know, John, in those days, when we talked about national security, we were talking about counterterrorism. We were talking about Al-Qaeda uh, and its affiliated groups. We were still very much in a post-9-11 world. Uh, and we spent you know, maybe 90% of our time doing investigations, surveillance, and prosecutions of uh, terrorists. You, you're there, you're working heavily on terrorism. Mm-hmm. I think I was at F- FBI at the time. Yeah, you were, yeah. And then you leave um, for the duration of the Obama administration, mm-hmm. so roughly eight years. Mm-hmm. You come back, mm-hmm. and tell me a little bit what, what changed. Well, it changed significantly, and not just because you were in charge, but because uh, – the, the nature of the threat changed, not immediately, of course. I think, you know, obviously I was looking at it from the outside, but the first uh, years of, the first several years of the Obama administration was still very much, I think, a counterterrorism-focused um, job. But I, a couple of things changed along the way. One was the rise of uh, nation states as threat 
actors that had to be dealt with from a Justice Department perspective. Another was uh, the rise of cyber as a tool for projecting nation-state power. And that was something that you uh, and uh, Lisa were very much focused on and actually had reorganized the division uh, by the time I got here to address uh, the fact that we had to focus more on nation-state activity writ large, but cyber uh, activity by nation-states in particular. So the nature of the threat changed. By the time I got here in 2018, the nature of the terrorism threat was markedly different than it had been in 2000. Just jumping in, you were saying uh, that what Lisa and and I changed. You're talking about Lisa Monaco, Lisa who's Monaco, assistant right. attorney general. So and then, Lisa Monaco yeah. was the uh, second assistant attorney general during the Obama years. And then she was followed by you, right? And I think both of you were very focused on uh, cyber. And I know that was your background too when you were at the FBI, when you were at, at the cyber uh, part of the criminal division here at the department also. And I think rightly saw that it was very important for those of us who work on the national security side of things, on the nation state actor side of things, to have the expertise to develop and uh, investigate and prosecute cyber cases uh, against these nation state actors. And so that's something that we've continued and built upon in the last uh, years uh, since you were, since you left. Yeah. It's interesting because, you know, when I, when I came in and was doing the shift over to the division, we were thinking, we might be at a transition point for the for the country where the terrorism threat has decreased and we're going to switch and and focus on nation state actors and particularly right. we're seeing the rise of cyber but actually that turned out not to be true because, because although in some ways because of ISIS <laughs> right. who yeah took advantage of cyber in a way in a different way not the way right. we've traditionally been thinking about it but in order to use social media to incite terrorist right. activity and so that Drew a lot of resources um, for for a, uh, a couple of years, and then you saw the nation state meddling in the election. In some ways, using a, a similar tactic as it turned out that ISIS had, which is not just hacking, stealing information, but by using social media as a propaganda tool. Right. And so that right. that that kind of hits. You come in. That's front and center on your desk. And and tell me a little bit about how you, you, th- you think about tackling that problem. Yeah. I mean, and you had done, but to your credit, I mean, there was that aspect of it. But before then, you know, there was the uh, computer intrusion side in terms of Chinese state actors stealing intellectual property. So another thing that we have been able to build upon, I think, in the last few years. I mean, when I came in, so it was post, it did take a, a while for uh, that process to go. So I didn't come in until early 2018, about a year and a half after the election took place. Uh, the special counsel's office was already up and running. Uh, and uh, we, you know, at that time, though, were focused and have been since then on election security, one aspect of which is, you know, countering uh, Russian uh, disinformation and if not necessarily disinformation, let's say the propagation of divisive issues and trying to stoke uh, discord uh, within the United States. And that's Let me jump on that, yeah, that, for a sec with current events. Uh, and there's civil, there's civil unrest uh, right. right now. And one thing that struck of interest that was in um, one of the special counsel's indictment 
was a description of how, in particular, among other groups, but that, that Russian provocateurs were using social media in order to pretend to do be Black Lives Matter, mm-hmm. along with many other groups, to just sow as much discord as they can. Right. And in this current time of, of social unrest, how are you monitoring that? Are you, are you seeing any signs of, of that threat? What, what role are you playing at the National Security Division? Yeah. So the Russians, as you said, are not new to these issues. And uh, they are looking for issues that will prove divisive uh, in the U.S. and are looking to amplify the voice of uh, both sides uh, and uh, sometimes uh, inventing uh, social media postings, uh, writing them themselves. Other times, uh, you know, retweeting, really amplifying messages that are already out there, but all to a view of uh, stoking division. And you saw it reflected in the special counsel's work. You also saw it reflected in an indictment by the Eastern District of Virginia of uh, the Internet Research Agency, which is uh, a uh, actually a private group in Russia, but affiliated with uh, Russian government actors who and whose job it is to uh, propagate these divisive messages, and especially to focus and try to make um, the uh, to try to increase the violence associated with. Uh, the, um, you know, differences, the strong differences of opinion among different people on these various issues. And then all to the goal, of course, that, you know, by dividing something, you weaken it. So it is all to the goal of weakening uh, the U.S. as a force uh, in the world, weakening the reputation of the U.S. and its ability to lead in the world, and uh, hoping that it's too distracted to deal with uh, the issues that are nearer and dearer to the Russian heart. So when it comes to the current uh, events, uh, we are tracking uh, and monitoring uh, and working with social media companies uh, to monitor uh, efforts by uh, foreign powers, particularly, you know, the Russians are very active in this space. The Iranians also get into this space. Um, is, is and that, are the Iranians involved in, in new, is there something new about the way Iranians are involved? Is that longstanding? How would you... New meaning in the last few weeks? No. I mean, new last few years. Uh, I mean, look, the Russians have been doing disinformation campaigns since the Cold War, right? So it's just that now they had a new platform, which is cyberspace and the internet. And so it was a new means of doing an old uh, tactic. Uh, And then other people, I think, having looked at uh, the Russian behavior in this area have decided to emulate it. And the Iranians have done some of that, although it's not on the scale uh, that the that the Russians have been able to muster. Um, what so, about the other two major actors in, in this space? So disinformation around civil unrest, China, North Korea, seeing any activity there? We don't, uh, not so much. So we have seen um, the Chinese enter this, oh, I should say this, The Chinese have been active in terms of cyber disinformation, but not in the U.S., right, but in other places in the world, say Taiwan, areas that are a little closer to their their heart. Uh, So we don't see them uh, in this space very active. We have seen them on the issue of coronavirus start to do uh, some social media uh, campaigns. Uh, and there the goal was to um, 
message how effective they were in dealing with coronavirus, how ineffective the West is in dealing with coronavirus, all to the point, one, I think, of, of, of limiting their responsibility uh, for the coronavirus, and then two, to try to establish to the world that the Chinese uh, authoritarian system is better at protecting the lives of its citizens than is uh, Western-style liberal democracy. Uh, but uh, we haven't seen them get into the this current uh, issue of uh, police brutality here. The work that the FBI has done and, and the Department of Homeland Security have done with the social media companies since the election of 2016 is actually quite uh, tremendous in um, their ability to provide information to one another in terms of what they see uh, with respect to foreign countries' disinformation campaigns, what accounts are being set up and used by uh, foreign countries. And then the social media companies have done a lot of work uh, of their own accord under their terms of use to take down a lot of that uh, content that they see that's online that's posted. So, would you by give them a good companies? grade in terms of the performance of social media companies at thwarting nation state propaganda on social media? I think, look, this whole effort, both by the social media companies and the FBI, I always say it's like sweeping your porch on a dusty day, right? You never get it totally clean because they're always, it's so easy to reopen an account or to open a new account or, you know, dream up a new handle and start uh, pushing your messaging. But if you don't do it, uh, your porch is going to be absolutely filthy, right? So, you know, during this uh, pandemic, among other things, I've learned I've learned that and have been uh, instructed uh, accordingly by my spouse. <laughs> if you don't clean regularly, it doesn't get clean and yes. doing it once is not sufficient. <laughs> you just have to keep at it. And I think both the Bureau and the social media companies have been keeping at it. And um, uh, it, what's gotten better, I think, is just that that two-way relationship of, of sharing information with one another Um that can, you know, help us push back on, on some of this. So just to pin it down, and then I'm going to sh- shift a little bit, but so we are seeing Russia in particular active with it, with our current uh, civil unrest in the same manner they have been with other types of unrest? We're starting to see some of that, yeah. Okay. And outside of, of Russia, I just want to talk a little bit about, uh, I think it would be of interest for folks, about the National Security Division, which was, as we've talked about, really stood up with the focus on international terrorism right. and an international threat. And what role does it play when the, when the civil unrest um, is inside? It's coming from inside the United States when much of it is peaceful um, protesting and the di- the more difficult lines to draw when it comes to domestic terrorism and when when to call it domestic terrorism right. and what the statutes are. Maybe you could just start with, with laying out the framework. What, what is domestic terrorism under federal law from the point of view of a prosecutor? So it's different from what we think of as international terrorism in terms of the law's approach to it, right? So usually when you hear about terrorism cases, uh, international terrorism cases, uh, what people are talking about is individuals who... Uh, are providing support of one type or another, whether it's money, whether it's themselves, whether it's weaponry, uh, whether it's helping another person uh, to join a group, to a group 
uh, that has been uh, designated by the State Department as a foreign terrorist organization. Now, to be a foreign terrorist organization, you have to be uh, foreign, as the name suggests. And uh, that means that there's not a precise test for that, but basically the bulk of uh, your activities and members have to be outside the U.S. or have to be transnational. Um, and, and so when we talk about, you know, material support to terrorism, that, that's sort of our standard terrorism charge uh, where we're charging somebody with providing support to one of these terrorist groups. On the domestic terrorism side, uh, there are a few things that are different. For one thing, when we talk about international terrorism, what we're talking about, not exclusively, but by and large, is jihadist terrorism. When you talk about domestic terrorism, you're talking about a wide variety of groups or individuals here in the U.S. Uh, from the far left to the far right that uh, have you know very very varied ideologies, uh, and some of these are not very well uh, structured uh, as groups. The second difference is that our law is set up differently, um, and the statutes that we can use that when people talk about domestic terrorism, you know, they're thinking about aren't uh, premised on the idea that the government has um, labeled a group as a domestic terrorist group and then gone after everybody who supports that group. Um, we are going after uh, individuals who are undertaking a set of violent activities uh, all for the purpose of uh, affecting government policy, uh, intimidating the civilian population, or overthrowing, growing so far as to overthrow the government. And that's effectively, sort of more in lay terms, the definition of terrorism in U.S. law. But there's no crime of domestic terrorism. What there are instead— So let's say—I think that's going to be a surprise to some. Uh, so there's—but there's, uh, it's an important point— that there right. is no crime of domestic terrorism, and yet it is defined in statute. So why why define it at all in statute? What meaning does it does it have? So the, the statutory definition uh, is useful if you're sentencing someone. It's an enhancement uh, to their sentence if you can show that, let's say, they committed a murder or um, you know an assault on a federal officer, all in furtherance of domestic terrorism. Uh, and you can get a greater sentence. It also opens up the use of some uh, investigative tools uh, that that would be available in those kinds of cases. So it's uh, it's not that it's a crime in and of itself to do that. And and the definition itself presupposes the commission of certain criminal violent criminal offenses. Uh, and uh, but there's no crime called you know a crime of domestic terrorism. So you can't right now. Sort of you following up on what you said, you can't designate a group inside the, the United States and say you're a terrorist group under well, federal law. You you can, but it doesn't have the legally significant meaning that it has when you're doing it for an international uh, foreign terrorist organization. So what I mean is you can uh, point to a group and say you are operating as a terrorist group and therefore focus the resources of the FBI and law enforcement on that group 
and uh, say to those law enforcement entities, you should be taking the same approach vis-a-vis that group, even if you can't bring exactly the same charges, but take the same investigative approach as you have been on the international terrorism side. So, and what I mean by that is, you know, on, on the international terrorism side, after September 11th, the focus was very much on the prevention and disruption of terrorist activity. It wasn't going to be a uh, let's figure out who did it after it happened approach. And uh, together with that, uh, or as a a part of that, is the idea that you're going to bring a variety of charges uh, to neutralize, to disrupt uh, international terrorism suspects before they can act. So you might bring visa fraud charges, for instance, on somebody and then have them removed. Uh, although maybe originally that investigation started out as a terrorism investigation, but you didn't want to wait until you saw what terrorist act they did and then charge them with that. So does that mean the FBI and the National Security Division of the Department of Justice or other members of the, uh, the Justice Department will be focusing on members of the Antifa? So for several years, uh, both the Bureau and us, and, and John, I know you brought uh, attention to the domestic terrorism issue when you were in this job also, and you had created within the National Security Division this position of domestic terrorism coordinator, uh, which still exists uh, to this day. But it, and, and so for several years, what we have done is to take that same approach against domestic terrorism um, and th- th- that we had sort of developed vis-a-vis international terrorists and to and apply it on the domestic side. So to give you an example, you know, you probably saw a series of disruptive arrests take place before the uh, rally down in Charlottesville uh, this past winter. And the idea there, again, was figure out, you know, not the people who are there to assemble in favor of Second Amendment rights, not the people who are there to, to just to protest and petition the government, um, but figure out who's uh, going to come to this uh, rally, who in particular might be traveling across state lines to come to the rally and to foment acts of violence. And don't just watch them and then arrest them when they do it, but actually see whether there are criminal charges you can bring beforehand and then uh, charge them beforehand. So you're disrupting them before they can do it. And in fact, that uh, rally, although it was, you know, very large, was ultimately a peaceful one in contrast to the one, you know, yeah. two years before So that. a lot in there. So one is, and it's actually prohibited, right? And uh, you, you cannot target a group on the basis of their opinions or thoughts, their First Amendment activity. Right. And so instead you're looking for other actually other existing crimes because there is no domestic t- terrorism right. Char- right. charge to bring and then third you're really looking your your top goal is the prevention of violence so particularly violent crime if I'm if I'm hearing you yeah no for sure that's the number one goal is the prevention of violent crime on the on the first amendment point that's also true on the international terrorism side uh, I mean, you, you can't, the FBI is prohibited from targeting anybody only on the basis of their First Amendment activities. And that's obviously very consistent with the Constitution. And how, because they are already existing crimes. So in in our current arrest, what role does National Security Division um, play 
When, when do you get uh, involved? And you wear a lot of hats, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more, but one is the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. That doesn't come into play yeah. With, de- yeah. with domestic terrorism. Right. So when you say some other tools for surveillance might be available, you mean under criminal Yeah, criminal, criminal tools, laws. for sure. Right. So, I mean, our main, uh, you know, what we're looking at, and so uh, there's something, as you know, called the Justice Manual, right? It used to be called the U.S. Attorney's Manual. It lays out what the responsibilities are of the different uh, parts of the Justice Department in terms of reviewing and either approving or being consulted upon in different charges. One of the statutes that we have responsibility for, which is relevant um, uh, to the issues we've been talking about, is called the Anti-Riot Act, right? And so that that's basically criminalizes the uh, crossing of state lines to uh, incite or participate in a riot. Groups of outside radicals and agitators are exploiting the situation to pursue their own separate and violent agenda. In many places, it appears the violence is planned, organized, and driven by anarchic and left extremist groups, far left extremist groups, using Antifa-like tactics, many of whom travel from outside the state to promote the violence. The statute itself is... uh, fairly old. It's been used sometimes successfully as it was used in uh, Charlottesville to go after some of the folks who committed violent activity down in Charlottesville, sometimes unsuccessfully. In California, the uh, district court judge threw out a charge uh, under that act as being contrary to the First Amendment. So it's got, um, I think the courts that have looked at this most, most carefully say, well, it's got a lot of constitutional First Amendment issues in it. Um, uh, and then the question is, is there a core that you can of the act that is properly you know, criminalized? And uh, our job, you know, I think, is to keep sort of the charges within um, that core where we're comfortable that people are being uh, charged, not for exercising First Amendment freedoms, for protesting, but truly for uh, crossing state lines to engage in violent activity. And have you brought any uh, anti-riot act charges Related to the, I don't believe. Uh, no, yeah. So I'm sorry. There have been a couple charged uh, in different districts uh, in the country, and so one of our jobs, you know, currently obviously is to coordinate with the since the protests are taking place across the U.S. to coordinate with the U.S. attorneys' offices around the U.S. and provide what expertise and support they need uh, as they decide what uh, charges to file. As you said. The, you know, the vast majority, first of all, the vast majority of the protesters are absolutely peaceful. Secondly, um, even of those who are arrested, most of them are being arrested by a state and local police and only charged by state and locals. And what we're focused on are really um, the people who are out there uh, participating in the most violent acts uh, and uh, in particular against, obviously, federal buildings is an area where we have to be. Uh, focused on since that's U.S. property. And combining the two, before we move on, the R- Russian mis- uh, misinformation, which I think you, you said you're starting to see the the anti-rod. Would you say in part you know, you're you're defending? I mean, are they going after the peaceful protesters in a way, trying to foment uh, violence and in that way disrupt the civil right of being able to peacefully protest? So we. Uh, 
I mean, certainly when people engage in violence, they, they are um, uh, also hindering those people who are just trying to peacefully protest from peacefully protesting. Um, what we did see, you know, on the Russian side, uh, not not right now necessarily, still early days in terms of what we've seen, but previously, uh, when a few years ago the Russians were also focused on this issue of police uh, brutality, um, we did see the Russians try to make um, individuals more violent, right? Encourage them. So maybe they they already thought, you know, and and felt strongly that the police, in some particular instance, had. Uh, committed an act of brutality, but they were not necessarily inclined to uh, act violently. We, we have seen Russian disinformation websites, uh, you know, pushing people to be more violent than they would otherwise be. And in that sense, you know, really just trying to get them in trouble. And um, who, who in the department, uh, other side of this has been the, the misconduct by a police officer, um, who's now charged with murdering um, a, a civilian, does the National Security Division play a role in policing police uh, and police misconduct? Who, who plays that role in the department? That is usually the Civil Rights Division, uh, which that plays that role in the department. You know, usually, as I understand it, you know, you, you see what the state's going to do, and the state, in this case, as you said, brought charges. You can then, in addition, bring uh, federal charges, but those are usually civil rights Charges, so we don't have uh, statutes that uh, that we use that apply to that kind of conduct. And uh, in case there wasn't uh, enough going on with foreign uh, terrorists, nation states, um, civil unrest, there's a pandemic, uh, and I know we're wearing wearing masks and staying far apart. Um, tell me a little bit about the the way the National Security Division goes to work in a pandemic? Because it's not a place I know where people can stay home. And then also, are you seeing it have an impact on the terrorist threat or nation, uh, nation state threats? So just in terms of the impact on our day-to-day work, I'm here almost every day, just because as you said, and as you know, you know, my office, which was your office, is in a secure facility. In you know, a one thing I was curious about is it's a hand reader. And yes. What do you do in a pandemic with a hand reader? How are you getting into your office? So uh, <laughs> I have to say that the assistants who are there are very good at keeping an eye on the cameras and opening the, the uh, you know, unlocking the doors from their desks so that we don't have to use the hand reading. There's also hand sanitizers on the other side of the hand reader, although that actually predated coronavirus because the hand readers under any uh, set of health circumstances are a little bit gross. So uh, we'll see. I had we get- a young one when I was in, and I was constantly infecting everyone in the in the skiff. <laughs> some, some you should move to disease. retina scanners, I think, yeah. soon. Uh, but the um, so so much of the work we have to do has to be done in a secure environment, which means I think of all the divisions in the department, we're probably the ones that have, you know, the highest percentage people of here on any given day. Uh, still, you know, we encourage people to work from home whenever they can. And there are certainly aspects of our jobs 
depending on exactly what your job is, that could be done from home. The people who are working on cases, for instance, that have gone to prosecution, most of that is going to be unclassified and they can do a lot of that work uh, from home. Uh, I would say the biggest impact on our work has been on the outreach side of things. Uh, As you had done, you know, John, when you were here, I have done a lot of outreach to the private sector, to universities, to academic institutions, to uh, the press, uh, at conferences, and and uh, everything from one-on-one meetings to, you know, uh, very large conferences. And all of that, along with all the travel that goes with that, has halted. So there's a little bit, you know, I'd say maybe 10% of that volume has switched to Zoom and 90% has just been canceled, as is the case in, you know, in any field. So that's, I think, been the biggest impact. And it is an impact. I mean, I think in this job, one of the things you can do uh, effectively is to raise awareness of different issues with the affected uh, communities. And there's nothing that beats that better than being able to go to talk to people, you know, as you know, just face to face. Let me talk about a little bit about that because part of that outreach, right, is is developing trust and right. informing people about um, what new threats might be that they're not thinking about. And I know that's been part of your university outreach. Right. But another way of delivering that message is with handcuffs. And I have noticed it. It seems like an increase of arrests um, around universities and the, the conduct of of espionage, and then particularly linked to uh, the pandemic and COVID-19, the remarks that you've made about the targeting, particularly by China, of uh, research here about uh, vaccines. So what's going on with that message and with those prosecutions? Well, so a lot of, um, you know, one of the big focus areas for us has been theft of intellectual property on behalf of the Chinese government sort of writ large, both as a result of uh, theft that's directed by the Chinese intelligence services, that's conducted by the Chinese military, uh, often that the military through cyber means, uh, or uh, as a result of, you know, an ecosystem uh, that encourages uh, theft and the private initiative of theft uh, by the Chinese government through programs like the Thousand Talents. And so our focus in, in you know, the end of 2018, we launched what we call the China Initiative, uh, which was the result of regular uh, intelligence that we were seeing day in and day out. As you know, we have the regular intelligence briefings with the FBI uh, and the intelligence that the Attorney General at that time, Attorney General Sessions and I uh, were seeing about thefts of intellectual property from American companies and American universities and uh, trying to figure out what more we could do about that. And the cases uh, are, one, you know, building on on the cyber side, a lot of the work that you did. So let me to, just you pause on there. So what you're referring to is there's a China initiative right. to tackle it, and you are the top official in charge of that initiative. Right. Yeah. That's a department wide initiative. And then we have a steering committee and I'm the head of that steering committee and have focused a lot of my time on, on this issue of Chinese espionage, including political espionage. Uh, But a lot of it is uh, private 
uh, intellectual property espionage. So uh, part of it is building on the work that you did uh, when you brought the charges against the Chinese People's Liberation Army actors for hacking into a variety of U.S. companies to steal intellectual property. It's nice to be on this side of the microphone asking questions about that because I have gotten the occasional question, what were you thinking bringing criminal charges against members of a nation state? And I've noticed you have brought some similar similar charges. And so maybe you can just walk through why use the criminal justice system as a tool for cases where it's unlikely that you're going to get the cooperation of, of the foreign nation, particularly when you're indicting their military. So they may not see a courtroom here. Well, I don't know what you were thinking, but what I'm thinking <laughs> is that, no, it's, so look, two different kinds of things, right? One are those, the cases that you just described. The other are a lot of the insider threat cases, which are more traditional, you know, cases where you can actually uh, detain the person and charge them and arrest them and put them in jail. But in, in the case you're talking about, in the cyber cases by foreign government cyber actors who are uh, located outside the U.S. and you're unlikely ever to get any of them, why do this? And I think, you know, there are several answers. One is uh, that they play a very educational function, these indictments. They, one, show the nation state, which prizes uh, anonymity. I mean, that that is, you know, one of the uh, one of the things that people prize about the internet is at least the sense that they're anonymous, uh, although they should be aware that you are rarely anonymous on the internet, but uh, that we can figure out, we can attribute to the nation state uh, who has done the activity uh, and that we're going to call them out on it. So we're also trying to set up a system of norms. And so the norm, I think there that, that you started to vindicate that we've been building on is it is not proper for a nation state to engage in commercial intellectual property theft. We understand uh, that nations have engaged in political and military espionage for thousands of years. Uh, and if you look at our charges, you'll see that we have not charged that kind of activity, even though we're quite aware of it and we try to uh, combat it in other ways. But when we see them do things like the North Koreans robbing banks uh, via the internet, or we see uh, the theft of intellectual property, as we were just talking about, uh, we are going to bring the case uh, to uh, set down that marker with these other countries, not just for those countries, but also for other countries who might be watching uh, and saying, say, a smaller country, well, if China could try to develop its economy by stealing intellectual property from American or European country companies, maybe that's a good way for me to do it. So we're, we're trying to set up the norms. A part of that is getting uh, foreign governments to join us in that attribution and in those indictments. And I think indictments uh, are, almost un- have, are an almost uniquely credible way for the government to speak. Because what we're saying in the indictment isn't, um, trust me, this is who's doing what. What we're saying is, I can go to court tomorrow, and I would love to go to court tomorrow if I could get my hands on one of of those folks. I could go to court tomorrow and I could prove what's in this indictment using only unclassified admissible evidence in front of 12 jurors. And that's sort of the heart of... Uh, the American criminal justice system. and and uh, So you're saying the indictments are more credible than Twitter? 
the indictments are more credible than me just saying <laughs> something to you uh, because I'm saying, hey, I could prove this to you. Uh, no, I often uh, think the same thing and, and people underestimate um, and it, it's still true even in this troubled, troubled time that you know, one of the American strengths is, is the credibility of our criminal justice system, which is why it's so important. I think we respond to the complaints when, when it is not applied properly, but it's still for the world, the envy of the world in terms of a fair system. And So I don't know if you probably saw, I think it was just last month, the Germans charging a cyber criminal, who a Russian cyber actor who we had already charged with uh, cyber intrusions. Uh, in in Germany, which they would not normally have, or I should say, it was the first time that the Germans have charged conduct uh, by somebody like that. And I do believe that we are influencing uh, people and saying that, look, even if you can't get your hands on the person right away, this is a very proper way for you to call out misbehavior by a nation state or by, you know, um, a series of, of actors. Um, and the last time we did uh, a big uh, cyber case, uh, we had 12 other nation states join us on that same day, not with charges because they all have different criminal justice systems, but with uh, joining us in the attribution of that activity. That was APT-10, a Chinese uh, intelligence uh, operation, hacking operation. So that's advanced um, persistent threat. 10, 10, which is just the way they name a group. Right, right. Uh, right. Uh, And, uh, but, you know, when we charge, and and the other thing I think that's important there in terms of attribution is we don't charge countries. We don't charge units of countries. We don't charge APT-10 itself. We charge individual people who are really the fingers on the keyboard uh, behind the hacking. And that's how specific we can make uh, that attribution. And we oftentimes have their pictures uh, as part of that uh, package when we roll it out. And let me shift a little bit as, as we're talking about that, because it raises the question, well, how do you, how are you able to collect such information, um, whether it's preventing a terrorist threat or uh, a nation state actor? And one of the flips flip sides of the our new technology is encryption and encryption is is often what we recommend in order to protect uh companies individuals campaigns mm-hmm. from dedicated nation state actors but it was also called out recently in an investigation in the Pensacola terrorism case an investigation that seems to have linked um uh, and, and walk me through this a little bit. Is this the first, when was the last time we saw an, an international terrorist group, Al-Qaeda, directly plot a terrorist act inside the United States? Well, uh, what we saw there in Pensacola was, you know, the individual who um, ended up uh, killing uh, the sailors down there, um, you know, communicating with, uh, members of uh, terrorist organizations outside the U.S. And, I mean, we see that, uh, unfortunately, you know, more frequently than we would like. Although, you know, as, as we've said at the beginning, the nature of the terrorist threat is very different today, you know, than it was uh, previously. And a lot of the people we're seeing are radicalizing themselves, you know, on the Internet. In so would you basements. put this then more in the... But, you know, in the way of anal- analyzing it, there are some where we, we think it was um, 
designed and planned and operated and directed from overseas into the United States and others where it's really an individual here who's kind of heading down the path of, of radicalization and they assist on the path of radicalization. And then I'll put a third category of a little bit of hybrid. Someone's walking down that path of radicalization and asks for help from someone outside the, the United States. How would you characterize I mean, this is a little bit of, uh, of, of both. I, I don't think that we have said that we believe this person was directed by anybody outside the U.S. Uh, certainly the planning, his own planning began before he came to the U.S. and participated in the, in the program. Uh, and then while he was here in the U.S., he was communicating with people outside the U.S., uh, letting them know what he was planning, uh, whether he was kind of tacitly seeking their approval or, uh, you know, wanted to get credit for what he was doing. All that is still, I think, a little bit unclear, um, but very clearly communicating with people, um, you know, with terrorists uh, outside the U.S., other people who we've... And let's get, let's get into how, I mean, that's incredibly important, but difficult to know and going back to why the National Security Division was created in the first place, it was created because of what had been evaluated as a failure to be able to capture communications of individuals inside the United States planning a horrific terrorist attack and their outside handlers and putting that, putting that information together. In this case, it seems like there was a different sort of um, technical issue, but you were able to, to overcome it. Can you, can you walk me through a little bit why the attorney general called out, um, in this case, problems with uh, encryption? Well, the, the fear, John, I think is maybe the one that you just put your finger on. So if, if NSD was created because of this connect, the failure to connect the dots problem, which is what it was identified as after 9-11, that the intelligence community, the law enforcement community had not worked well together to connect dots that various pieces of them knew uh, that would have demonstrated the links between folks here in the U.S., folks outside the U.S., and might have been able to show ahead of time the kind of plotting and planning that they were doing. Um, There is a concern that as uh, the terrorists have moved to uh, encrypted platforms uh, and encrypted devices, that we're going to move to a pre-9-11 reactive um, stance from where we've been, which is a proactive, do the surveillance, uh, find out what the plotting is, put the dots together and disrupt the plot before it happens, which is where we've been after 9-11. A lot of what we've been able to do since 9-11 is a result of the use of laws like the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act uh, to track the communications of terrorists, whether it was on email or it was on phones or it was texting or whatever it was, as those communications technologies evolved. The difficulty with um, the encrypted apps that we see uh, various terrorist groups using is that we can't see those communications in real time, and we often can't see them at least without great delay, um, even if they're stored somewhere, as they were in this case when it was stored on his phone. Um, And that means that our ability to disrupt uh, terrorist activity is being degraded. And I see that, you know, on a regular basis when I um, sign 
the FISAs, uh, and uh, those are the intelligence surveillance warrants on the foreign intelligence side that go to the foreign intelligence surveillance court for approval. But as you read through the affidavit, you know, the probable cause affidavit, uh, so this that goes sworn with statement the from a law enforcement this agent. sworn statement by uh, the agent, by the FBI agent, um, you get to a part where you know that these two people are communicating uh, or your, your target is communicating with a series of other people, but you don't know anymore what's being said, right? And uh, the problem is twofold. One, you may end up surveilling someone for longer than you ought to be because actually what's in those statements wouldn't be threatening. Or two, you know, they're actually planning and you have no idea what they're planning and what they're saying. So this is an issue that we've, you know, we've seen. It, it's grown, uh, you know, in the last administration, there were various attempts to try to see how we could solve this issue of encryption. And the attorney general called it out in Pensacola and more generally. The developments in this case demonstrate the need for a legislative solution. Truth is that we needed some luck here, in addition to the ingenuity, to get the phones this time. There's no guarantee that we can be successful in the future or that we can avoid massive delays, in this case more than four months. These will have significant consequences for the American people. With the philosophical view that there should be some way for uh, the government, when a court authorizes it with probable cause, to, consistent with the Constitution, um, to be able to see the communications of uh, individuals who they who it suspects are uh, terrorists. Now, and, you, you helped architect, in some respects, in your prior stint in government in mm-hmm. the Bush administration, uh, one of the key frameworks for the collection of foreign intelligence uh, mm-hmm. surveillance in the United States. You've had an opportunity now to see the, the, the fruits of the statute um, mm-hmm. as you try to apply it. And there's there's a reauthorization battle about certain parts of FISA occurring right now mm-hmm. um, in, in Congress. And key, I, I know you've said this before as well, key to being able to use these authorities, which really in some respects are are limitation actually imposed. People think of it as a positive authority, the Foreign Intelligence Act, but really Surveillance Act, but really it was a limitation on Mm -hmm. the executive branch that came out of abuses. Right. And we seem to be in an an unprecedented period of lack of trust. Um, And so how big of a problem is the current lapse in Foreign uh, Intelligence Surveillance Act authorities? And how do you overcome the, the, the trust issue in, in trying to be given such powerful tools. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, the statute that I worked on last time around, which was um, the part of the foreign intelligence surveillance laws that deals with targeting non-U.S. persons who are not here in the U.S., so people who we never think of as having constitutional rights, but we want to target them here in the U.S. because for whatever telecommunications reason, their communications are passing through the U.S. Um, and that's so-called 702. The 702, yeah, yeah, Section 702 of FISA. What was interesting back then is FISA uh, was seen as the answer uh, to the problem of foreign intelligence surveillance. And uh, 
to ensuring, as you say, that the executive conducts foreign intelligence surveillance authority appropriately. Today, you know, the, the view has very much shifted and FISA is seen as um, the problem as opposed to the, to the answer uh, to the problem of surveillance. Uh, what's actually up for reauthorization uh, are three very limited parts of the FISA statute, uh, and none of which have, well, I should say one of which has been the subject of some controversy, but there's no question that um, the statute as it's currently drafted can't be used in that controversial way. And that is the, it was used to collect um, uh, metadata from uh, U.S. telephone numbers. So that's the numbers that people dial, the numbers that are dialing them and the time and the dates, that kind of information. It was used to collect it on a vast scale. Um, that provision is not an issue and uh, everyone has agreed that it can lapse. The program is not uh, currently used by the intelligence community. So what's left is, you know, an authority that is the national security analog to what's a criminal grand jury subpoena. So you can get documents or records from hotels or, uh, or uh, phone calls, just not of the you know, records of the phone calls, not the phone calls themselves. Um, and uh, the second is something we call roving, which we basically use if someone uh, tries to evade surveillance by changing uh, telephone numbers and telephone providers during the course of a court-authorized surveillance. And then finally, something called lone wolf, which is, you know, uh, tries to address the issue of, well, what if we find a terrorist one day? Only applies to non-U.S. persons. But what if we find a terrorist one day who doesn't really have any affiliation with any terrorist group? Now, Obviously, the reason why FISA writ large is controversial is because of the Carter Page FISA. None of those tools were used uh, in uh, the Carter Page uh, uh, FISA or were um, criticized at all in terms of their use. So, but in the moment, obviously, when people are focused on FISA issues, you know, I think Congress wanted to take a look at, you know, whether it shouldn't. Uh, amend other parts of FISA while it was reauthorizing these kind of common sense tools uh, in FISA. And so, as as you know, and has been in the public, the Attorney General uh, negotiated a package of uh, reforms to FISA with the House, both the uh, House minority and the House majority, uh, and those reforms got passed through the House. And they do contain some significant but workable reforms to FISA that I think would increase uh, the accuracy of FISA applications, the the completeness of the facts that are in there. And you have a special role to play as the head of the National Security Division in doing oversight of FISA. Um, There's an inspector general report Mm -hmm. following up on the Carter Page FISA that that found that, uh, that the FBI was not implementing corrections that had been recommended by your own oversight division and then also found that they were finding other other errors that wouldn't be found through the normal oversight. With the proposed reforms uh, and also with your own leadership of, of the division, what type of changes do you think should give people comfort that, you know, this is a tool that's important, but it can also be used effectively and in a way that's protective of people's civil rights? So we've, you know, the FBI is together with us has undertaken a number of changes to its processes. I think if you look at um, 
you know, the inspector general's reports, in particular the one on the Carter Page FISA, what you see is uh, a problem not just of inaccuracy, but of, of a failure to be complete. That is, there are a lot of facts. It's not that a fact as stated in an application was false, like a sentence is false, but that there were other facts that should have been in that application that would have shown light on the meaning of, of that sentence and even um, undermined uh, the sentence and certainly undermined the probable cause finding at the end. Uh, and so we've been working with the Bureau to ensure that the agents are um, showing all of their uh, cards, all of that information to the lawyers in the National Security Division who are preparing the applications for filing uh, with the FISA court. And uh, we've been working with the court on this. Obviously, the court is very uh, focused on the integrity of its own proceedings and of the papers that are filed before it. So there have been a lot of changes uh, at the Bureau on the process side focusing on eliciting that information in individual uh, applications. Also, uh, though, on our oversight side, where we have been very focused, and you probably remember on the accuracy of the statements in an application and reviewing um, a subset of those applications every year at the different field offices of the FBI um, to make sure there was documentation to support all the statements in there. We're going beyond that now in a subset of those and looking at what we call completeness. So we're going to look at the rest of the FBI's investigative case file and see if there's any information in there that should have been included in the FISA application uh, at all. Um, And we're going to, um, uh, you know, we we used to give people advance notice when we were going to come. Now we're going to do more surprise visits also uh, as part of that. Um, And uh, so there are a number of changes you know, I think that we're already instituting as a matter Excuse, of As you're doing process. that, do you have trust and faith in the current leadership of of the FBI to help implement these reforms? I mean, the, the director and uh, the other folks who are there, the deputy directors, the executive assistant director for national security, they are all um, focused on uh, making these changes because I think they appreciate as much as anybody that if we're going to keep these tools, we have to make sure that we use them correctly. Uh, and so we've been working uh, hand in hand with them in, uh, in, in, in making these changes. And the directors proposed more than 40 changes overall to this process to try to address these issues. Um, so the House bill would have made some additional changes, would have made some of this statutory, would set up, I think, very importantly at the FBI, an office of compliance that would really expand. There's a currently a small office there. This would really expand its function um, and its mandate. It wouldn't just apply to FISAs, would apply more broadly to compliance with various FBI procedures and processes um, and uh, would require higher level accountability for certain subsets of applications, et cetera. I think there was a good package of reforms there. Unfortunately, when it went to the House, it was amended uh, in a way that we in the House or in the sorry Senate Senate, when it passed the House in a form that we supported, we uh, were hoping it would pass the Senate in that form as well. But the Senate amended uh, the bill and added uh, a provision sponsored by Senators uh, Lee and Leahy that would significantly change the amicus provisions of the FISA statute. So, you know, the amicus, like they can be in any court, is somebody appointed by the court to help them decide uh, legal issues. And uh, what 
there currently is an amicus provision in FISA. It was put in there a few years ago, uh, and it's been used maybe 10 or 12 times uh, by the court when it's dealing with particularly thorny issues. Um, and just to lay it out for folks, so the idea then, uh, we put that in, 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 in a statutory change in the last administration was these are complicated uh, issues of, of law. There's constantly changing technology as well. And the way the FISA court works, the, the lawyers for the government are really supposed to, because it's an ex parte proceeding, go above and beyond where they normally would go in, in briefing the court. But as we found so much, you know, generally in our adversarial system, it can be helpful at time to have an independent right. voice. And that was supposed to be the amicus. So what uh, what is it that's so problematic about the the use of the amicus with the senators, uh, Lee and Leahy amendment that, that caused the administration to yeah. uh, oppose it? So when you say these are tough issues of law, the, the answer is sometimes. A lot of these are really just search warrant applications. And they're really very straightforward applications, probable cause decisions that judges make both on the criminal side and the national security side, you know, hundreds of times a year, right? But you're absolutely right. There are times when, because of the technology involved or, or just the legal issues involved, I think it has been helpful to the court to have an amicus. And they have both technical amici who are non-lawyers, but actually, you know, people who are um, technical experts. And then they have legal amicus or the more traditional amicus role. The Lee Leahy bill would greatly expand the number of cases in which an amicus was called for. It would, it would make it presumptively necessary to have an amicus um, in, you know, most cases. Uh, and it has like six or seven categories of cases, but some of the language is very broad. It doesn't, I think, draw the distinction it should between U.S. person cases and non-U.S. person cases. And just to give you a sense, you know, every time we've had an amicus, there's been about a six to 12 month process to get a ruling out of the court. Because at that point, you're talking about contested litigation. You have a briefing schedule. So what happens then? Are you saying that, so you're trying to go up, there's a a spy or a terrorist and there's no ability to surveil for uh, six months to a year? Right, right. So we, but but the court has been very responsible about when it's used amicus. And, and, and so, you know, I, I don't think we've ever been put at risk because of that under the current system. Under this statute, you know, our concern was one, it called for, you know, the use of amicus in many more cases. Two, uh, it changed the nature of the amicus. The amicus is no longer the friend of the court helping the court work through difficult legal issues. The amicus is its own institutional player within the court. It's almost like, and I'm going to borrow a phrase that somebody else used without naming him, uh, a federal public defender role of amicus, right? So somebody who gets in there uh, is appointed by the court, but then is allowed to raise any issue that he or she sees. So normally the court says brief this, right? They can spot any issue. They can brief any issue. Um, They have access to vast quantities of information, um, uh, both at the FBI and at the court. Uh, it strips away the ability of the executive branch to withhold information from the amicus on national security grounds, which exists in current law since the last administration. Um, and it, but really, fundamentally, what it's doing is changing the whole nature of the amicus role in the process and saying, 
this person who's about to be surveilled needs an advocate. And in order to be an effective advocate, you have to be able to see the FBI's investigative file, right? You have to be able to see all of this information. And the worry we have is uh, several fold. One, just the delay that'll cause. Two, um, the fact that, uh, you know, some of what we rely on in these applications is hugely sensitive from foreign countries or from our intelligence agencies that they won't share that information with the Bureau because they don't want other people seeing it if they don't think access to it can be controlled. Um, so those are the sort of some of the problems with the AMIS provisions. There's also two other provisions. Just one quick question as you do. Yeah. So un, under the new system, would they would it be like a federal public defender insofar as they'd have an ethical obligation to advocate um, in an adversarial manner or would they be still like the current ambiguous provision where they're providing an independent view to the court? Well, they're providing an independent view of the court, but they are much more independent from the court than they are currently. So for instance, if the court, let's say, grants the government's application, currently that's the end of the matter. Here, the amicus would have the ability to petition the court to seek review with the Foreign Intelligence Court of Review. And if they lost there, to seek certiorari to the Supreme Court. So, and then if that's denied by the court, their brief is supposed to be declassified in the same way that opinions of the court are currently declassified. So it, it's creating, you know, this separate institutional structure. Um, and then the other problems are really problems that, you know, I, I would hope could could just be fixed through some language. But for one, it, it says, for instance, um, that the attorney general or the federal officer making the application has to certify that all information in the government's possession that's material to that application has been given to the court. Now, as you know, read literally, that's broader than our criminal Brady discovery obligations, because you don't have to go to every agency in the government and see, hey, do you have anything about you know, the Chinese uh, espionage efforts in the U.S. that might be material to this application. So um, that's a concern that we have, that we could never make that certification. And then there's one about uh, accuracy procedures, another concern of the court finding and a certification we have to make that we would never make it. At the end of the day, we thought this is just not operationally feasible anymore. And so once that uh, amendment passed, in the Senate, we, as a department, opposed uh, the the legislation as it's currently drafted. As you know, it did pass through the Senate uh, back at the House. The House has requested a conference. Uh, I think the Senate has indicated, at least uh, informally, that it would be willing to conference, uh, and that's where things are right now. And um, in the interim, are we safe? I mean, do you think we have the tools that we need while you work out this legislative debate? So, so far, I think so. Um, the uh, There's a sunset provision in the business records provision. Of those three provisions I talked about, the biggest one that we use is the business records provision. And you kind of use that at the beginning of um, an, uh, an investigation to see, you know, it's, it's not 
the most intrusive tool. We're not listening to your conversations. We're not reading your emails. You know, we're getting third-party business records to see if two people are connected uh, to one another. If somebody, uh, you know, visited a city the same time another person visited a city, those sorts of things. So there is a sunset provision in the business records law that expired on March 15th that says that if the investigation existed before the sunset, uh, that we can continue to use business records in that investigation. So that authority is very valuable to us, you know, up front. Obviously, we'll degrade over time because you'll start to get new investigations that we can't say were uh, existed as of March 15th. So I think for now, um, you know, uh, we're okay. Uh, but, it, you know, it, it doesn't make sense for us to continue without these really three very non-controversial authorities, um, which, you know, can have some significant value in, in our cases and that they're just kind of common sense uh, authorities early on in a case. So um, for now, we're okay, but, uh, you know, we certainly would want them very much to be reauthorized. In this time of pandemic, civil unrest, unprecedented cyber attacks, and also attacks on the fundamental integrity of our law enforcement uh, institutions and on prosecutors. What message are you giving to the folks in the National Security Division? So, uh, you know, I've always, I love the National Security Division. I would not have come back to this department or to the division uh, if I didn't. Um, And uh, that's been my message to them, a very supportive one of, um, you know, continuing uh, those aspects of their work that have been uh, valuable as the threat has changed, continuing the focus on foreign election interference, on foreign influence, continuing, you know, our counterterrorism efforts, but also adapting them as we see domestic terrorism uh, become more of a threat uh, and, um, you know, continuing the efforts on the cyber side and the intellectual property theft side, continuing to develop the relationships um, with the private sector and with universities. And so my message for them has always been one of uh, that, we're, that, we, that we're constantly building on the work of the year before. You know, I feel very much that I've been building on the work that you know, you and, and David Chris did and uh, Lisa Monaco did and that you all were building on the work that Ken Weinstein and Pat Rowan did and that in this area, although the division has changed significantly, both in terms of size and focus in the 14 years since it stood up, that there's also been uh, great continuity and stability uh, and uh that that's the way it needs to be in an area like national security, because the threats that we're facing, whether they're from non-state actors like terrorists or state actors like China and Russia, these are actors who will come after us consistently year after year after year. And we have to maintain that consistent pressure on them equally. John, it's been great having a chance to to talk to you today. And I hope people get, get a chance to hear uh, exactly what you said, that there's maybe a lot that can uh, divide people on a, on a range of issues, but there, there's a group of folks whose name are not known here 
who have the benefit of your leadership who are focusing on on those who attack us because we're American and don't really care much about our beliefs, whether they're terrorists or otherwise. They're they're attacking what we stand. So glad to talk about a wide range of issues where you're thinking about how, how to protect us all. Thank you. Great. Thanks a lot, John. And thanks for all the work you did when you were here. I hope you found the conversation between John Carlin and John Demers informative. As mentioned, Cyberspace is a new forthcoming podcast for members of the Cafe Insider community. Hosted by John Carlin, each episode will explore and explain issues at the intersection of cyber, policy, and law with some of the most thoughtful and influential leaders in this space. Head to cafe.com slash preet to receive takeaways and updates on new episodes. That's cafe.com slash preet.